You're listening to Canada Reimagined. I'm Patrick Esmond White. This episode, Give Growth a Chance. Canada is already growing. Our population, our economy, everything is expanding at a rapid rate, and we can't seem to get ahead of it all. We play catch-up with housing money here, a battery factory there, lots of spending, with little sense of a coordinated plan. The radical alternative would be to consciously adopt a strategy of rapid growth to catch up with all this and get ahead. The result must be green industries, social policies that work, and democratic renovation. The ultimate utopian outcome, peace, order, and good government, and a sustainable planet. So imagine this with me. If we look a few decades down the road, we will have ended our addiction to fossil fuels. Even then, there will be another crisis facing Canada, and here's why. The global population is now 8 billion. It will peak at 10 billion at the end of the century. Many countries have stable or shrinking populations. Some, especially in Africa and in poor nations, face huge population growth, ecological disaster, and brutal governments. Hence, waves of desperate refugees will continue to cross into Europe and to swarm the American southern border. You know, the one with a wall. Canada, with a population of 39 million, has the fastest population growth of any G7 nation. We already accept immigrants at three times the rate of the U.S., and this is already stressing our ability to cope. What's more, the pressure to take even more refugees will just continue to build. Ironically, Canada already needs more workers, partly because we are an aging society. Jobs are begging to be filled, and without workers, we can't unleash the natural resource wealth found throughout the North. It's a chicken-and-egg dilemma. Fifty years ago, Canada was one-tenth the population of the U.S. Today, it is one-eighth. By the end of the century, Canada may be up to a quarter the population of the United States. That's not impossible, and it may be just what we need. But it comes with huge challenges. A century from now, if trends are correct, robotics and AI will do more of the labor, populations will start to decline, and economies can stabilize. But first, we have to get through the oncoming storm. As it stands, American population growth is slower than Canada's, not because of lower birth rates, which we also share, but because of American hostility to immigrants. Large numbers of illegal immigrants swarm their southern border. Those refugees face huge challenges. Even if they make it across the border, it's grim and it's heartbreaking. Both Republicans and Democrats have made border security a top priority, but can't manage the problem because it's become 100% political. This is dumb since they also need workers to replace their aging population. Canada, as I said, selects who can get in. It's our advantage. 
We accept more by proportion, but we still have unfilled jobs and need to generate wealth to pay for the costly transition to a sustainable and democratic planet. Our growth, however, is already causing immense problems. Cities can't cope with the demands, whether it's housing, education, healthcare, transit, or any of a number of other services. Cities are falling behind. Costs go up endlessly. Our current citizens feel the pain. Some blame those desperate refugees, but they too are just trying to survive. The point is, there is already a backlash to immigration. It's a political tinderbox, and Canadians do not want to copy the Americans on this issue. So, rather than look through a political lens, let's be practical. Let's start with the fact that Canada's economy depends on having a highly educated workforce. Modern jobs require a modern education. This would suggest we invest more in post-secondary institutions, helping young Canadians get the good jobs of the future. But that's not the case. Quebec is doing everything it can to scuttle its English-language universities. Well, that's Quebec. It is, as they insist, a unique society. Yet Ontario is not doing much better. Budget cuts to post-secondary education by the Ford government made it tough on universities. They responded in two ways. They raised tuition for everybody, and they upped the number of foreign students who pay a lot more. Students from India now put as much money into Ontario universities as the provincial government itself. The unintended consequence is that Canadians are being squeezed out. This is actually happening nationwide. Canada needs doctors, nurses, scientists, teachers, construction workers, all kinds of skilled professionals and trades. A sensible policy would be to spend more on education and give Canadians priority. That would require national leadership. It's a national problem. As an aside, Canadian online university and college courses could be given free to the developing world as a form of foreign aid, and that would stop any complaints that we are being isolationist. But wait, back to my topic. Don't foreign students who come here stay and work? Well, currently Canada has over 800,000 foreign students. About 30% eventually stay. 70% do not. In the meantime, those foreign students need housing, which is already in short supply. They occupy tens of thousands of spaces, driving up rental costs. Cutting the provincial budget to universities is, in this light, totally counterproductive. It's yet another reason that education should be a federal responsibility. Then, there's the impact of rapid growth on infrastructure. Canada already has an infrastructure deficit estimated at $150 billion. 60% of public infrastructure is municipally owned. This is the level of government that feels the pinch. Imagine we adopt industrial strategies in green mining and robotics and hydrogen economy, transportation and the other fields to generate wealth. To kickstart these industries, it'll require major public investment in new infrastructure, far beyond 
the current infrastructure deficit. To fund this, we need to run the economy at a faster growth rate than it ever has in the past. This would be a conscious decision. It would mean wanting the GDP to grow at, say, 3 or 4% a year instead of the 2% that's been the average. We could set an inflation rate of 3% instead of the Bank of Canada's 2%. So, faster growth, but not too fast. It would take years before Canada actually gets rich from green mining. Investments do take time to mature. Initially, Canada could encourage private sector investments in small modular reactors, robotic mining, airships, green smelting and other industries. Ideally, this would happen not with tax breaks or cold cash, but by streamlined, risk-managed regulation, where sensible governments would invest by buying products needed by the public sector, like SMRs and airships or telecommunications services. These industries will help Canada grow, but all of them need workers at every level of education and knowledge. I'll get back to the worker deficit, but first a detour through urban planning. Canadians are already short of housing. Our municipalities are already struggling. New housing often means new suburbs, more infrastructure, more sprawl, making the 15-minute city even less likely. At the same time, we can't put new heavy industries into these crowded cities. They're already stretched to the limit. Is there a solution? Yes, a bold one. Look around. Other countries have been much more innovative about urban planning. Take Doha, capital of Qatar. It went almost overnight from a backwater town to a futuristic urban metropolis. Or Dubai, one of the most architecturally amazing cities on earth with a population of 3.6 million. It took three decades. Or Saudi Arabia, which is now building The Line, a linear city, 170 kilometers in length through the desert. It will be totally green and sustainable. But none of these can be models for Canada. They had oil money to burn and we don't. They had authoritarian rulers. We don't. A better example is China, which has built 600 cities as hundreds of millions of peasants moved off the land in the last half century. China is now planning a new model city that will be totally green, sustainable, and ultra-modern. The Chinese approach is to design cities from the ground up. They've learned a lot. It can be done. We could do it democratically. Given the growth rate of Canada, it absolutely makes sense to build entire new super cities. The most efficient, cost-effective way to construct large-scale infrastructure is to do it in a totally new site. Water, sewer, roads and bridges, transportation and energy grids, all this stuff is so hard to upgrade in an existing crowded city without disrupting everyday life. Imagine then that Canada invested in building totally new green super cities. They could be designed for several million people each. They would of course be green using the best available technology for energy and transportation and communications. The new industries Canada's encouraging, green mining and a hydrogen economy, would be based in new green cities purpose-built 
the industry's needs could be incorporated into the infrastructure. These cities would also plan for the cultural and intellectual life that makes great places to live. Parks and schools, universities, hospitals, and other facilities would be integrated into the urban design. Signature architectural features would be essential to the design. You go big. Here's how the decision process might work. Let's use robotic mining equipment as an example. Green mining is already a priority in the industry. Robotic equipment will be a huge global industry. With this in mind, imagine the federal government proposes to build a global hub for this new industry with a critical mass of everything from research to manufacturing supplying the world market. With this goal, the mining industry would be invited to get in on the ground floor and define its needs. Municipalities then bid to host the new city, showing they can meet the industry's needs. The winner then builds the basic infrastructure, the foundation. In building a city, developers too would have a chance to invest. They would build apartments to house workers, who in turn continue to build the rest of the city. They would construct the offices, factories, schools, stores, hospitals, universities, parks, sports and cultural facilities. Some construction would be public, some private. The new cities would be designed to withstand climate crises with everything from energy self-sufficiency to urban farms. On all this, we can certainly learn from the Chinese and others. Canada is behind in urban planning, in innovative architecture, but catching up is actually fairly easy. Big ideas for a critical moment in history. If all this sounds very expensive, it is. It would cost tens of billions of dollars for the public infrastructure alone, so once again, we need to get creative. One solution? A land value tax to pay the public sector investment. Here's how it works. A land value tax would replace municipal property taxes. This tax would be applied to the land alone. When submitting a bid to be a super city, the municipality would have agreements in place to buy all the land they need plus what the industries would need at a fair price. When the project is approved, land values would go up quickly and land value taxes would go up in lockstep. The key is no taxes are ever levied on improvements to the property. If the land sits idle, the owner pays the same taxes as the high-rise or luxury home next door. Landowners would have a huge incentive to develop the property. Developers would build housing, rental units, commercial property, all to generate revenue. A century ago, this idea of a land value tax was called Georgism. It was a big deal. It died out in the 1920s as automobiles let people escape to the suburbs where property cost less. The tax is now regaining support because expanding municipal services to the distant burbs is so expensive. Municipalities dislike speculators who sit on serviced land paying low or nothing in taxes, waiting for the value to rise. But if we solve the money shortage with a land value tax, we still have a shortage of workers for a project such as a super city. In a world where so many refugees seek a hope, people are not in short supply. 
workers ready for the modern construction industry on a project as big as this, well, that's another matter. Yes, over time, refugees can be trained. Most want to work and would willingly train for the right job. Training, however, takes time. So, we should not simply release refugees onto the streets of Toronto and expect success. Poor immigrants should be given shelter, food, education, training in language and civics, all to get them off on the right foot. We could take this further and train them to build cities. That is, jobs in administration, IT, heavy construction, trades, warehouses, drivers, and all the other requirements of a complex project. It would take time. Even without super cities, Canada needs a larger educated workforce. Doctors and scientists, engineers and artists, we need these even without a high growth strategy. Those shortages will only get worse. Where might we get workers who could come in and do the initial construction jobs and literally build cities? Where can we find educated professionals? How can we bridge the gap between the workforce we have now and a future where human resources are in balance with needs? A simple, radical answer is to be found by looking at our neighbor, the dysfunctional states of America. In the chaos, we can absolutely predict down south one group that will surely suffer a lot is made up of undocumented residents, so-called dreamers. There are millions of them, people living in the United States without citizenship or visa or any path to citizenship. They are the people Republicans want to deport. To qualify as dreamers, they must have lived and worked in the States for a long time with an unblemished record, no criminals, just good, would-be citizens. U.S. Congress is deadlocked and unable to help them. They're desperate, undocumented Americans who seek freedom. These dreamers are mostly Hispanic, from Mexico or Central America, people of color with indigenous ancestors. They and their families fled to the United States in desperation, escaping horrific conditions, and they're not going back. So, if we embrace them when the United States will not, it might be a simple solution to our need. Canada could offer full citizenship on a new fast-track plan. These workers are often trained and ready. They could get instant access to the jobs building the new Canada with fair pay, benefits, health care, the works. They would implement Canada's growth strategy, build new super cities where they can live the dream. What would the reaction be in the United States? They would certainly be annoyed. It would cause heated debate. It would certainly mean a loss of workers taking an economic toll. Washington might be inspired to pass legislation to help the dreamers. American hypocrisy might end in confusion. If, after several years, the dreamers take the passport, get a visa, and move back, well, fair enough. Those who stay would be incredibly thankful, patriotic Canadians. But regardless, we would have a stream of new workers completely ready to fill Canadian jobs. Let's turn to the cost of a rapid growth strategy. Yes, it would require the government to take on major debt. The economy would have to run hotter than it has. The private sector would have to see the opportunity and invest. 
Yet the reward for a high-growth strategy would be a Canada that by mid-century would be more wealthy, more powerful, and a beacon of hope. Radical? Yes. Unlikely? Absolutely. No responsible political leader dare propose ideas that run the risk of ridicule, but I have no such concerns. The haphazard approach we now have, however, putting billions of dollars into all these issues with little impact, it's simply not working. It's all nice and good. It's just never great. It's time to give growth a chance. You've been listening to Canada Reimagined. I am Patrick Esmond-White and responsible for this program. I'd like to thank Tom Plant for his theme music, Tom Evans for the artwork on my site, and Harbinger Media, a group of independent Canadian podcasters that is worth giving a listen. A special shout-out to my friends at the Pullback Podcast. Till next week, take care. <laughs>